52 episodes, 52 ordinary people, 52 real stories about things that affect overall health. Because there is a lot more that goes into being healthy than food and fitness. Inspiration, support, a new perspective, and knowledge. You'll find that and more here on the HealthAbility Project. Welcome to a special edition of the HealthAbility Project podcast. I'm Robin McKenna. All five May episodes of the HealthAbility Project are dedicated to important topics on women's health in honor of May is Women's Health Month. So far, May's episodes have covered maternal nutrition, which is a severely underdiscussed yet unbelievably critical topic, women's health equity, what it is, why it is so important, and what is being done in the U.S. and abroad to elevate it, and cervical cancer, a cancer that should have much lower rates because it is highly preventable. Today, we are going to talk about another very important women's health topic, menopause. My guest today is Dr. Karen Brodman. Dr. Brodman is a gynecologist in private practice, a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and an assistant clinical professor at Mount Sinai Hospital. She is recognized for her expertise in menopause and perimenopause and co-authored The Unofficial Guide to Coping with Menopause. Dr. Brodman is a member of the North American Menopause Society, NAMS for short, and is a NAMS Certified Menopause Practitioner, NCMP for short. In addition to menopause and perimenopause issues, Dr. Brodman deals with a wide range of gynecology issues, including, but not limited to, contraception, vaginitis, pelvic and sexual pain, fibroids, abnormal bleeding, PCOS, cervical, and breast cancer screening. Her goal is to deliver quality gynecologic care that addresses each woman's individual needs. Her office is located on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Dr. Brodman earned her medical degree from the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, then completed her residency training at SUNY Downstate Health Sciences University in Brooklyn, New York. She subsequently went on to do private practice in obstetrics and gynecology in Manhattan, and in 2017, she transitioned to a gynecology-only practice. And in full disclosure to listeners, Dr. Brodman is my GYN doctor. Thank you so much for being with me today, Dr. Brodman. I am so thrilled to have you here. And in particular, I am really thrilled to be able to talk about menopause. Uh, it's it's a topic that is on the minds of many women that I know. Uh, and I think you you have a lot to share with us. So thank you. My pleasure to join you. I have a lot to tell you. It's it's become quite the topic lately, but um, it's, uh, it's it's a real passion of mine. I've been involved with menopause um, treatment, and uh, I've watched the evolution of menopause in terms of treatment knowledge and the way women are interacting with their doctors. It's been uh, quite exciting, and especially now 
2023, we're having uh, almost a, a, an explosion of menopause information and interest as we learn more about uh, the menopause transition itself. And we have better options for treatment and uh, people are just, uh, th there's a whole baby boom era, frankly, that are now in menopause and people want answers and treatment. And luckily we, we have more options and more information available than we did 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So what have you seen from the beginning of your, the beginning of your career to now, as far as that evolution, you mentioned that there was, I guess, very little information or the way that women were treated, say at the beginning of your career is very different than what you're seeing now. And, and I would agree. I feel, I feel as if it really has become a topic uh, in the forefront now. And, you know, we can also talk a little later about the New York Times article, which was unbelievable, uh, a wealth of information and just so eye-opening. But what have you seen? Are women still coming to you with the same symptoms? Have the symptoms changed over the years? And and how how have they evolved as far as treatment, the way they are treated when they are seeking help for their symptoms? What can you tell us? We'll go back to the back to the 80s and 90s. And I was practicing medicine back then. So um, I, I, I know what was going on. Basically, uh, HRT uh, was was uh, was a, a combination oral medication called Prempro. Um, there was information, uh, the medical information suggested that it might, in fact, prevent heart disease. We already knew that it was preventative for osteoporosis and it was marketed um, aggressively as a way to prevent osteoporosis in uh, in postmenopausal women. So that was the, the original focus. They uh, Observational studies showed that it probably helped with heart disease. And so this huge study was undertaken to, uh, to show that that was what people now know as the WHI study. Um, it was meant to look for the effect or the benefit was the premise that it would benefit heart disease in women. So they took women pretty much um, of all menopause ages from uh, the mid mid 50s all the way up until their mid 70s and put them on oral Prempro because that's the medication that was we, we had available, which is Premarin, which is called conjugated estrogens, as well as Provera, which is medroxyprogesterone. After five years, they actually found that there was an increase in cardiac events, some increase in strokes. There was a slight increase in breast cancer, and there was a huge backlash, huge backlash. This was in July of 2002. I remember it well. Everybody and their grandmother was calling to say, I need to get off hormone therapy. And, and that was that was basically the message that was sent out through the media. Uh, so many women went off their hormone therapy. Um, because that was what was being, that, that's, that was the information they were getting. That sort of held in place for the next 10 years. And then the, the data was uh, reevaluated. And what they found was that there were actually two groups of women in the original cohort. Those women, the, the, the older women, the women who were in their uh, 60 plus years, uh, you know, and then there were the younger women, the ones who were about 10 years 
uh, from the onset of menopause. <clears throat> and those two women, those two groups acted very differently. The older women by far had the higher incidence of cardiac stroke, et cetera. Uh, the younger women did not have that kind of effect. So we we got we realized that we're dealing with two different subsets and that that did help us to define some of the limitations of hormone therapy, who should take it, who shouldn't take it. In addition, a big change is the type of medicine that we have available. Uh, we now are using more bio-identical medication and the recommendation is to give bio-identical medicine from a pharmacy uh, source, pharmaceutical source, because we have FDA supervision and we have um, medicines are are more uh, uniform. Uh, whereas in a uh, compounded uh, area, they may not be so well regulated, and you may not be getting medications that are what they're what they're built to be. Not to say that all compounded pharmacies are bad; there certainly are some good ones, but uh, that's just a general a general thought with where we're going, because we have those bioidentical medications that are more physiologic, more like your own body's hormones. So we have different medications. Um, we have a better understanding of the benefits and the uh, the risk of hormones. We also know that by not taking hormones, you run the risk of missing an opportunity to treat certain aging type of phenomena, such as you're, you have increased risk of bone loss. Uh, menopause affects the whole body. I mean, I could go on and on about that, and maybe that's a good place to go. But uh, it affects it affects uh, your your bones, your mind, your heart, your blood vessels, um, and and sexually, uh, the vagina is extremely sensitive to uh, to the effects of of hormones and the lack of hormones. So I would think that most of us are not aware of this, or we're not aware of this. The, the mm-hmm. fact, I think, you know. We all know it's coming as as women, and we just think, oh, it'll be night sweats and mood swings, and you know, eventually it'll pass, and we'll be able to move on with our lives. But there is so much more to it, and uh, and like you said, only in recent memory really has has the information been pouring out. Well, the hot flashes are a big topic. In fact, at this year's menopause meeting, hot flashes took you know front and center. Hot flashes have a major impact on on your well being, on sleep, on mood. They can last for a decade. Some women are more impacted than others. Some women have minimal symptoms, and that's the thing about menopause. Um, it it really varies in how it impacts each individual person, and we've individualized the treatment that. Uh, is the other thing. It's not just that one medication, Prempro. We individualize uh, the treatment. We individualize the needs. And there's some women who don't want to be on hormones, shouldn't be on hormones, can't be on hormones. Mm-hmm. And then we have to manage their menopause symptoms uh, without hormone medication. And so, and then you get a few, you know, lucky individuals who just do fine without anything and they age well and they have no problem, but they are probably more in the minority than, than the bulk of of our population. And do you know, because this came up in uh, the episode on cervical cancer, are there any particular ethnic backgrounds that either have a higher rate of multiple or severe or more severe symptoms, or is it really very individualistic? There are certain ethnic groups that are more affected by, for example, hot flashes. We know 
that um, uh, women of color typically are more impacted by hot flashes. I, it's, it's not quite understood why, but there are different women who are heavier are actually usually more affected by hot flashes than women who are more lean. We also have uh, surgical menopause. So if you have an abrupt cessation of uh, your hormones by, if you have to have a hysterectomy along with removal of ovaries, uh, you certainly will be more impacted as well. But there definitely the people have been looking at the ethnic variation uh, in terms of hot flashes. Also, we know that uh, bone density tends to be higher or stronger in women who are, are heavier. Women who are lighter are more likely to have osteoporosis. So we, there are certain characteristics that, that do change. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Over the course of of your career and and treating women for menopause and, you know, maybe even your colleagues, once somebody comes to you and they they get treatment, whether it's HRT or something else, have they ever come back to you and said, thank you, or, you know, your recommendation for this really helped or it really made a difference or, or always (laughs) a lot. (laughs) I mean, that's the nice thing about being in private practice. I patients I've been taking care of for, uh, some of them for decades. And, and it's, you know, when, when I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of seeing somebody who truly is struggling with certain symptoms and many patients will come back and tell me this really made a huge difference. I feel so much better. Um, I have women who go on hormone therapy and hate it and they stop. I mean, that's, that's part of what needs to be done now. That's how we're approaching this. You have to individualize the treatment mm-hmm. um, within certain parameters, of course, you know, you're yeah. not going you know, crazy and giving people all kinds of bizarre medications or, or definite treatment parameters, but there's a lot of fle- you know, flexibility in, in how you treat. Some of my patients don't need hormone therapy. What they are really bothered by is vaginal atrophy. Well, we used to call it vaginal atrophy. The correct term is now genitourinary syndrome of menopause or GSM. And uh, some of those patients, if, if their treatment, if their symptoms are mostly confined to vaginal dryness, pain with sex, we can treat with vaginal estrogen or other modalities. And that can make a big difference. We don't have to treat with uh, whole body systemic therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you and your colleagues do in that period between 2002 and 2012 where women just dropped HRT altogether? What what alternative was available to them? I had plenty of patients who stayed on HRT and it was certainly fine. You know, we went through all of the risks, the benefits, et cetera. So many women did stay on. For women who went off, eventually the hot flashes stopped. The vaginal symptoms usually increase with time. And that's what a lot of people may or may not realize is that uh, the hot flashes, uh, some of the mood changes are are the earlier menopause symptoms. But then three, four, five years down the road is when you get the vaginal thinning, pain with sex. And it doesn't even have to be totally a sexual symptom. It can just be uh, a feeling of more frequent urination more difficulty holding urine or uh, more urinary incontinence will may, may start to occur uh, and just vaginal irritation. So uh, for that, we've been get using low dose local vaginal estrogen as one of the key 
ingredients. There are other ways to treat. And there certainly are women who cannot go on hormone therapy. For example, women with cancer as an example. And those women need need help with managing their symptoms in a without hormonal therapy. I'm sorry, you cut out for a second. Did you say oh. women with mm-hmm. breast cancer? So women who are diagnosed with breast cancer, often majority of them will have estrogen receptor and or progesterone receptor positive tumors. In that situation, they have to stop uh, estrogen. If they're still menstruating, if they're premenopausal, uh, they're given medication, uh, not necessarily, they'll give, they're given what's called a CIRM. It's an estrogen-like medication, most commonly uh, prescribed is tamoxifen. Um, but in those cases, estrogen may not be medically sound for them to take. Often it's not. It usually is not. You get into a certain subset of women uh, once they've been treated with breast cancer where we can sometimes treat vaginally because it is such a low-dose treatment. But yeah, that is in fact a common common situation. Have any of your patients or uh, your colleagues in, in NAMS ever shared or discussed other alternatives? I mean, have, have your patients come to you and said, I, I'm now doing yoga and I find that that's been helping or meditation? You know, people may be seeking as a complement to HRT some natural therapeutics. Always, always, always promote a healthy lifestyle. So exercise is is a great treatment. Yoga, anything that will calm people down, uh, those are all beneficial. And you know, it's it's you're looking at the whole body. So you know, always um, good at nutrition. You know, it it all works together. It's not in isolation. Yeah, yeah. Will yoga and exercise take care of hot flashes? Not always. Right. right. <laughs> it may help. I mean, it can certainly help. We have non-hormonal medications now to treat hot flashes and hot off the press. Uh, just <laughs> FDA, just FDA um, approved last week, three or four days ago, is a medication that is a non-hormonal hot flash medication. Uh, medication is is uh, trade name is called Vioza. It's not yet available for us to prescribe. Another probably another three or three or four weeks, perhaps, but right. it's it's certainly been FDA approved. It will be available. The only downside is very pricey. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems to be Shocking. somewhere in the uh, the price tag right now of about over $500 a month. Huh. So I'm sure that will come down with time, but uh, that, that just goes along with the research and interest we've had in in menopause symptoms. And we know that there are uh, neuroregulator neuroregular uh, regulator receptors in the brain and the hypothalamus that are very sensitive to estrogen and lack of estrogen. And that's where they were able to develop this new drug. So um, we also have for years have been prescribing uh, low doses of SSNRIs. So things like um, uh, generic uh, Effexor, for example, um, or venlafaxine, those medications in low dose seem to neuromodulate the receptors in the brain and can be very helpful with hot flashes as well. Mm-hmm. When patients come to you, do they do they say to you, I've been suffering for a couple of years now and I just can't stand it anymore? I mean, what is the average wait time before women finally come forward and say, I need help, I need something. 
It varies. I mean, there's some women. That's the nice thing right now. We're having so much more uh, recognition of menopause as as an entity that, you know, there, you mentioned the New York Times magazine article. Uh, so this this was a big, a big article, at least here in New York. A lot of people mm-hmm. read it. Mm-hmm. It raised awareness of menopause. Oprah just had a whole talk on her her show that uh, was highly watched by many of my patients as well, bringing up awareness. This is the thing, bringing up awareness of menopause. There are a number of companies that have uh, online companies that are marketing menopause treatment and others that will basically... Um, Patients can find these companies online. (laughs) They exist. And if you meet criteria, you can be prescribed hormone therapy. There are a number of YouTubers out there who are very knowledgeable, who are putting out, you know, uh, frequent uh, uh, information on menopause almost on a, you know, on a weekly basis. So women have more, you know, as part of, you know, all of our information explosion, podcasts like this, women are getting educated, they're getting the information. Um, And so people are more aware. The other thing is, I have a lot of patients who don't realize that some of their symptoms are driven by menopause. Hmm. It's a whole body tsunami. I mean, it affects, there are estrogen receptors in every part of your body. And so it's sort of a, it's, it's a body shift you're shifting from one one spot to another think about when you went through puberty you know your your whole your whole being changes all of a sudden you're getting estrogen flooding your body and you know we all remember what happened in puberty you grow your skin becomes rosy uh you know new interest in sex you know all these types of things will happen well when you hit menopause it's not quite as dramatic but there definitely is a quantum leap shift. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, you know, how you adapt will really, each person's unique. That's all I can say. It's interesting that you say that about, you know, when you hit puberty and this is what happens. And, you know, I think as a society, everybody talking about that was pretty commonplace and pretty acceptable. And I know in the article they about menopause in the New York Times, they mentioned that there's not been any discussion until most recently about menopause and preparing mm-hmm. women for menopause and just making right. people aware in general, men, men as well, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's interesting that you say that. And and it's it's certainly, yeah, I guess menopause seems to be having its time. Have you noticed, I'm just curious, because I just think, you know, so much affects us, right? And, and you know, externally, personally, et cetera. Have the symptoms... I don't want to use the word popularity because it's not really the right term, but over the course of time, have you seen maybe the night sweats being the most common concern or insomnia or or has it pretty much been the same complaints steadily across the board? I mean, now, we, you know, night sweats seem to be the big thing or hot flashes, I should say. And I will tell you the brain fog, that to me mm-hmm. was the most concerning mm-hmm of my experiences, because, you know, when you're in your career and you have to show up for work every day, and as a woman, this is happening to you and you're like, my God, what the heck is going on? Well, I mean, what do you, what have you seen? Well, I mean, people, if people are uncomfortable, they're, they're going to look for relief of their discomfort. So that has always been there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that 
you know, hot flashes, clearly that that's, that's the hallmark of menopause. I mean, that's, mm. that's usually the defining symptom. Well, besides, besides irregular periods, I mean, we've got this whole new understanding of perimenopause that was not around when I started my career. We really weren't focusing on what was called perimenopause, but now we're very aware of fertility limitation. So as women have been going through uh, later child bearing at, at later ages, they realizing, oh, my ovaries are failing. And, you know, and as they realize that their ovaries are failing and their egg potential or ovarian reserve is dropping, the next step is that their periods are becoming less regular. And you start to get a little variation in the periods. You may, instead of them being like clockwork as they once were, they're a little earlier, they're a little later. Then you start missing a period. And by the time you're missing two periods are gone, about 60 days, that's when you might start to get some of those hot flash symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, those have always been there. The interesting thing, though, is besides hot flashes, night sweats, and we're now aware of how how detrimental interrupted sleep is. So disrupted sleep has a major impact, not only on your mood, it probably is contributing a lot to brain fog. It affects uh, mood, depression. It also has a physical impact. It it actually accelerates heart disease. Uh, There have been studies that show that it it has other effects other than just being annoying and uncomfortable. Women are now coming in much more concerned about osteoporosis and wanting to prevent osteoporosis. That's another one. And that's a, that's a huge, I mean, it's, it's a huge thing. um, A a phenomenon It's actually, it's quite a dramatic phenomenon during perimenopause and through that menopause transition. So we're talking maybe, uh, you know, anywhere from five to 10 years, women will actually drop or lose about 10% of their bone mass. It's a lot. And if you start out in life with low bone mass, because you were, you know, always a slender, you know, woman trying not to gain weight, or had anorexia issues, or were, if you, uh, other risk factors would be cigarette smoking, uh, even things like uh, malabsorption syndromes mm-hmm. in the stomach, inflammatory bowel, other things. Um, so th- we, we find that there are a lot of women who are truly at risk for osteoporosis. So they come into perimenopause and menopause with low bone mass. I like to say sort of like you know, it's like having money in the bank. If you have good, strong bones, uh, you build up that bank account during your early years. And then when you get to the menopause age, you, you have a little more of a cushion. But mm-hmm. some women don't have a cushion. And when they get to menopause, they lose that bone mass. And on top of that, you can't exercise your way into better bones. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you start losing that, ex- you know, short exercise. You know, I'm, I'm all for exercise, good nutrition, those things. But, but women are very much more aware that we as health providers are much more aware of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when I see women walking on the street and they look like if they just took a topple, they would shatter. It's it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And it really impacts people. You want people to be vigorous, strong, and healthy. That's what we're going for, is 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 really uh in all ways. And we try we try to do that as safely as possible, do no harm. And so yeah, it's it's more than just hot flashes. Okay. Now with the with the osteoporosis is 
once it's been diagnosed, is it is it too late to take the calcium pills? And the, I think Boniva is is something I've heard of in the past. I don't know if that's still around, but is it too late at that point? And at that point, no, is it's it not. It's about- not too. Okay. It's not too late. I mean, you know, prevention is is preferable to right. having to catch up and treat. But once we diagnose it and we see that we're dealing with someone with low bone mass, then we have medications now that are um, effective in maintaining bone mass, building up bone mass. Um, hormones play a role, usually, as I mentioned earlier, in preventing osteoporosis. So when you get women in that window of time, meaning that early menopause, those within those 10 years or even premenopausally, if they're able to go on hormone therapy safely and if it's something that they can they can take, it will actually help their bone health. Mm-hmm. But it's so calcium is probably not going to help build bones, although you know you you want to have you you don't want to have a calcium deficient state meaning you want to try to get enough calcium in ideally through diet rather than supplements. You want to have enough vitamin D. Vitamin D is a big driver of bone metabolism. And so we find we're now very aware of vitamin D levels and trying to make sure people get enough vitamin D either naturally through sunlight or with some supplementation, keeping bones healthy before you start losing bone mass by exercising regularly is fantastic. And then maintaining that exercise will help to strengthen the bones and the muscles. You want to keep your muscles strong because muscles will help to maintain your balance and help to maintain your bones in alignment so that you're less likely to fall. And, um, it's all connected. (laughs) It really is. Dr. Broadman, are there any tests that are accessible to women to even know that menopause is around the corner or perimenopause is around the corner? I mean, it'd be kind of nice to know to kind of get ready. Peace of mind, right? That's a great question. There's actually the best low tech uh, monitor is just keeping track of menstrual cycles. So um, that, that is when we start, it's a very real parameter that is very useful. So we can do hormone levels, but I have to tell you, they are not very useful in the average woman. Uh, There are, but I'll I'll preface that there is a new test though, relatively new that we are using. um, It can be used. Actually, I'm going to take that back. It's it's really not very useful in menopause, but the, the, the test that I'm talking about is called AMH. So anti-malarian hormone is uh, is actually used more for fertility evaluation. So women who are in their 30s, you know, we often use that test to see if they have enough quote unquote good eggs, what we call ovarian reserve. What happens is on occasion in evaluating women now, for example, for egg freezing, which is a huge change or or knowledge improvement, a lot of our menopause information actually came from the infertility world because they were the ones who made us much more aware with of of failing ovaries. Um, And so every now and then you'll get a patient who has a very low AMH as part of her fertility evaluation and you realize, hey, this woman is actually going to have premature ovarian failure. 
Um, huh. And so that is, we're, we're diagnosing that more frequently. These are women, much younger women whose ovarian functioning fails and they go through a sort of a, a menopause prior to age 40. So early menopause is prior menopause prior to age 45. Um, these women are not the majority. These are more of the outliers. Everything is like a bell-shaped curve. Uh, sometimes it's driven by disease. Sometimes it's driven by things like, you know, chemotherapy, other, other, you know, medical events. But as far as getting back to your question, monitoring the, menst- the menstrual cycle is a very real tool. If we were to do blood tests, for example, in the office, looking at something called your FSH and your estradiol levels, those are the classic hormones. In menopause, FSH is high, estradiol is low. But what happens in perimenopause until you actually reach, you know, find menopause, oh, we didn't even talk, what is menopause? Menopause is defined as the absence of a period for a full year until you reach, it's a, it's a retrospective diagnosis. So you can only say, oh, I'm in menopause now when you have had that whole year without a period. But obviously leading up to that time, your periods are getting more disrupted, you know, and and the rapidity of that change varies from person to person. But if I had a person who came into the office and said, I want my hormones checked, number one, usually I try to dissuade her because it's not going to tell me too much, mm-hmm. but it can be useful from, uh, you know, on occasion, almost like a snapshot in time. Mm-hmm. We're taking a snapshot right now of, of where you are with your hormones today. It doesn't tell me what your hormones will do tomorrow or the next mm-hmm. day. And we know that in perimenopause, those hormones are going up and they're going down. You know, on occasion, you have a woman where we just can't monitor the menstrual cycle because, for example, she may have a hormone secreting IUD in place. Uh, so those IUDs actually can mask the bleeding. So you know we don't we don't know what's going on. But I can usually tell on my on my gynecologic exam where they are hormonally just by looking at the vaginal walls. It's very telling, and and that really. It's around perimenopause. Many women will start to find that suddenly they have pain with sex, vaginal dryness, and and uh, those things can be treated with uh, just lubricants, moisturizers. But when it starts to have an impact where women really are uh, avoiding sex because of pain, then vaginal estrogen can be a very useful tool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was sort of all over with that answer, but <laughs> no, that's no, that's great. I mean, I don't but, think there's there's any one thing, right? It's uh, yeah. I mean, if 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 you really if you wanted a, something objective with a blood test, you would do an estradiol level and an FSH. And classically, you'd see a low estradiol and a high FSH. The tricky part is that during perimenopause, um, you know, if you haven't reached that one year mark, uh, your estradiol levels may be high. They may be, you know, you, you may look like you have you have the, the hormones of a teenager, but then a month later you have the, the hormone levels of a, you know, of, of a menopausal woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the most part, we we they, we treat with medications when we do use hormone therapy based on symptoms, um, and we don't go chasing after hormone levels. You know, we don't do large numbers of uh, of blood tests to monitor. Karen, thank you. This has been so eye-opening and helpful, I think. I know I have learned quite a bit just from talking to you here, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. I mean, I would say the takeaway is 
you know, to stay in regular touch with your GYN and to not be afraid to explore the option of HRT and really understand that if and when you get to this point, that it is an individualistic treatment um, and it's all about communication and being proactive, healthy lifestyle, exercise, good nutrition uh, as much as you can, right? That sounds about right. It's definitely a good summation. I agree. Great. Well, thank you again. Listeners, if you liked today's episode, please share with your friends, like us. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email me at thehealthabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks very much for tuning in. We will see you next week. Thanks for joining us today at The Healthability Project. We'd love to hear from you, so please email us your questions, comments, or suggestions, including future guests, to thehealthabilityproject at gmail.com. And please, like us, subscribe, and share us with your friends.